Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host Annabelle Collins and this week I'm joined by James Illman and Nick Tuno. This week we'll be dissecting Steve Barclay's first speech returning as Health Secretary during which he hinted the NHS could be in line for some extra funding along with giving some insight in how the government will be approaching various important things from strikes to capital development. Also this week, we'll be updating you with the latest on looming NHS strike action and also some important leadership moves at the top tier of NHS England. But first, James, it's all kicking off this week. Um, let's first talk about Steve Barclay's speech that you you covered for HSJ. It was at NHS Providers sure. Conference this week. Um, and it was, that was actually a, quite quite a lot in there. Sometimes health secretary speeches can sort of feel a bit empty, but um, there's actually quite a lot to get our teeth into. Um, well, I, I thought so anyway, from your Definitely. from your coverage. Um, what was the sort of main message you got from it? Yeah, so as you say, um, there was quite a lot there. Uh, I think just to kind of set the context, there were a lot of concerns prior to um, Steve Barclay's speech that, you know, he's already got this reputation for being a bit of a fiscal hawk, uh, being a bit suspicious of bureaucracy and NHS managers. And so there was this sort of concern that he would use the speech as a means to tell sector leaders to pull their socks up and, uh, you know, be quite robust. But um, and, th- and these concerns were actually further fueled by an article in The Times over the weekend, over last weekend, which uh, reported that Mr. Barclay had argued to Treasury officials that the NHS didn't need any more money uh, as part of the autumn statement. Uh, the idea of a health secretary saying the NHS does not need more money uh, is is pretty um, incredible, really. So there were they, that that kind of further fueled the concerns that that this was not going to be a fun speech for NHS leaders. Now I directly asked him in the Q and A in the hall after the speech about the Times article and whether he was uh, he had been pushing for more funding for the NHS or not. Uh, interestingly, he, he insisted the story was categorically wrong. He even said that they'd said to the reporter, uh, this is wrong and uh, the, the Times have got to run the story anyway. Now, now we don't know who is right and who is wrong. Uh, and in terms of the autumn statement, that is actually uh, literally the Chancellor is standing on his feet as we record this podcast. So we're not actually sure uh, what the end result was um, or is now. So um, so it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to find out, but he kind of said, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, um, I, I paraphrase. So you'll find out when the autumn statement comes that actually I have been arguing for more money for the NHS. Now, like I say, we don't know uh, whose decision it was to um, uh, do what in the autumn statement, but it is interesting that uh, given Mr. Barclay's sort of past reputation that, that he's positioning himself as a health secretary that will fight for more funding for the NHS. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of um, portrayal and image uh, side of things plays out. And also, yeah, whether he does, in fact, continue to kind of argue the case or on various funding issues for 
the NHS. And one of the things, in fact, that he mentioned in terms of funding, uh, which um, will be a sort of big, big theme over the next sort of five, ten years, was around capital funding and around the new hospitals programme. Um, and what he said was that on capital expenditure, he said that the NHS has to think differently about how we approach the NHS estate. And he sort of uh, said how nine out of the last 10 uh, hospitals which have been built have come in over budget and uh, um, have been very delayed. Now, I haven't actually gone back through them all, but <laughs> that sounds like a very plausible stat. These these uh, big capital projects often are both inside and outside the NHS. I might say any anyone who sort of follows football and notes stadiums are often late um, and anyone yeah, who looks at <laughs> transport or anything like that. These big capital projects, they are often delayed, but it, his Mr. Barclay's sort of argument was that we should move away from bespoke new hospital designs and towards um, what he called national standardised designs, so sort of cookie cutter hospitals, um, whereby, and this would not only kind of cut costs because you're doing the same way in different places, you get that kind of economies of scale, but it would also speed up the procurement process because um, you know, because everything will be standardised, it'll be a lot quicker. So not only will hospitals, not only will, yeah, they be able to deliver hospitals quicker, uh, they should be cheaper as well. Now, that all sounds very appealing. However, um, that's, and, and there has been quite a lot of talk behind the scenes about sort of standardising uh, the process more. We, we uh, had a a good kind of deep dive into the new hospitals program on the pod a couple of weeks ago. If anyone's interested uh, in that, they can um, yeah go back and um, pick that one up. But um, you know, a lot of trusts have been designing bespoke hospitals, and what are they going to have to rip up those plans and start again? It does it raises uh, as many questions as it answers. Um, but yeah, was a very kind of interesting point, nonetheless. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of, you mentioned at the top, Annabelle, in terms of strikes, uh, he did come on to that. Again, he, he was kind of taking this more sort of conciliatory tone towards the NHS and towards everyone. But then, you know, the, the prospects of strikes, uh, he said that the RCN's demands for a 17.6% uh, pay deal were unrealistic. He said this would cost the NHS nine billion. That that nine billion would mean you know less to spend on on capital and technology and all the other things the NHS needs to spend money on. So, mm. not realistic. Uh, and we know that he has uh, had various big emergency meetings with the unions, um, not just the RCM, but with uh, the kind of big six, which is also GMB and unison mm. the physiotherapists um and yet they've all been uh trying to get around the table and, and sort something out but yeah it does look like his messaging was you know 17.6 percent is unrealistic now does that mean you know 17.6 percent is the rcn starting point and his starting point is that's unrealistic he also said you know that's three times what people in the private sector are getting um, so maybe there's room for negotiation still, but that that bit it did sound like um, you know 
he was gearing yeah. up to take quite a hard line on it. I think we'll, we'll cover strikes in a bit more detail um, in just a minute. But uh, James, I just wanted to circle back a little bit around some of yeah, the sure. um, comments you made about capital. Did he give a sense at all of when trusts are trust waiting for news on their funding, when they could expect that? Or didn't he really shed any likes? I know, as you kind of directed to a podcast we did with Nick Carding, who's been covering the programme for, um, yeah, he's kind of our, our resident expert on the NHP programme. Um, yeah, that was kind of the, the, the big worry is that they just, they're not sure when they're going to get any news about this money. No, no. And I, I think part of that is 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 hinging on the autumn statement. So that will, mm, those timetables will have, yeah, will have been, uh, so there's a lot of, of people waiting uh, and the, mm. the, these announcements have been delayed a long time just because of all that utter, utter chaos mm. uh, at the moment in Westminster and uh, the department not wanting to sign things off because they don't really know uh, how much they've got to play with, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, I'm afraid no no light was shed on that. But, like I say, I, th I, th I think that's a fair cop because I don't think really anything can be sorted on that front until yeah. after the autumn statement. I did see quite an interesting comment underneath your piece, um, particularly pulling out the bit about um, the standardised hospital design. So I think someone said, well, we're not aren't actually building any entire new hospitals. It's kind of adding bits onto existing ones, yeah. developing bits and kind of how can you do that in, in a sort of standardised way? Because each hospital has got a different state, different challenges, you know. Oh, completely. And and this 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 was the thing. So one hospital chief executive I was speaking to afterwards we're saying, oh, yes, it's a very good idea. Oh, right. Um, so how's it going to impact your plans? Ah, well, our plans are going to be different because ours is in a city centre. and We're actually building it in with, I don't want to say too much because it will give away. You want to reveal was. Well, an unnamed but, but, but city centre. Uh, but, 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 but they kind of made the point that theirs was different. So, yes, yeah. everyone else should have a standardised thing, but I'm afraid you have to make an exception for us. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of people will be like, oh, yes, that sounds like a good principle, but we're different because of X, Y and Z. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of these schemes are different. And as you rightly say, the bulk of the quote unquote new hospitals programme isn't new hospitals, it's bolt ons to existing hospitals. So how does that impact that um, question? I'm not sure what the answer is. Interesting. And, and just I'm sorry, before we move on to talking a bit more about strikes, I was just interested because we ran a story before Barclays speech that was based on, um, I think it was a press release sent from the DH and it was kind of quite, it was sort of hinting about closer working between the DH and NHSE. Um, and I just wondered whether kind of anyone was, whether you kind of got a feel of what that might look like at all when you were, when you were at the conference. Um, did he did he go into any more detail on that in his in his main speech? Not really. Um, no, I'm afraid I can't really um, give any enlightenment on that at all. I have to be on the spot a bit there, James. <laughs> it's all right, I'm no sorry. problem. What I would say is, you know, in the um, Amanda era thus far, and things may change now, um, the, the mood music has been quite different between the DH and NHS England, and there has been a more sort of um, collaborative uh, spirit, uh, apparently. Uh, but I imagine there's been some pretty robust discussions over the last week or two 
um, around this. And yeah, it's, it, it's moments like the autumn statement that determine how relationships go. Um, and also, yeah, um, the NHS is going to have to work pretty hard to win the trust of 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 Steve Barclay. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm not sure that there was anything immediate on show, but that'll be an interesting um, picture to watch and and the dynamic between the department and um, uh, NHS England, and then obviously then there's the dynamic between NHS England department and Treasury as well. So it's mm, sort of mm. Yeah, and I think it was sort of big, another kind of bit of talking about mood music. I thought it was quite interesting that Amanda mentioned the need to publish uh, workforce projections, which um, NHS providers and others, you know, including Jeremy Hunt, actually in the, uh, chairing the, when he chaired the Health Select Committee, Health and uh, yeah, um, Health Select Committee, really pushing for uh, regular workforce projections um, for for you know for because. Um, yeah, we really don't have a very good measure of um, demand and supply and gaps, and there's no real, really very good uh, measure of vacancies. Um, I just thought it was quite interesting that um, Amanda Amanda mentioned that as um, I think she described it as OBR style, OBR style staffing forecasts. But again, yeah. um, there was a very important line in that story which said that um, the DH is not committed to a timeline for publishing the projections or that they will be published no. in full. And that just takes us back to square one, where, which was oh, that. Completely. And I, you know, and talking to people, I know that some projection, projections were done in 2019 when Dido Harding was leading um, the work on the predecessor of the people plan and that, that, that wasn't published published either so yeah I'll be I'd be amazed to see if there was a um yeah transparent publish public publication of workforce um yeah workforce forecasts <clears throat> yeah I mean so from from what was said at the conference uh on that front was that NHS England is still aiming to give the workforce plan to the department before Christmas but uh, this might slip till before the end of the financial year. So, uh, bit, yeah, by the end of March. Um, but then yeah. the department has to do something with it. So, yeah, it could sit there for a very long time. And then the it, idea of it yeah. being regularly updated again, um, it feels like we're a long way from that at the moment. But Well, yeah. And, you know, it's very expensive. So yeah. I'd be very surprised. surprised um, if they did decide to do that but thank thanks James as, as I said let's move on right. and talk yeah. a bit more about the strikes as there's quite a lot to unpack there and um no, Nick let's 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 bring you in on this one um perhaps it would be handy for listeners for us to just um sort of recap some of the sort of uh what, what we know so far really about the strikes and perhaps a bit around some of the interesting patterns of kind of where people have balloted to strikes. I know some of them were a bit surprising. Yeah, so as we know, the Royal College of Nursing announced that its members at the majority of NHS employers across the UK voted to take strike action earlier this month. They put out a list of all the organisations that had seemingly met this, this uh, threshold for, for strike action. And it was quite interesting in the analysis that we looked at regionally across the country where trusts had seemingly had more go for strike action than others in the southwest i think all but one trust being yeovil uh in terms of acute trust at least 
went for strike action in London. You saw some of the bigger trusts get um, hit that threshold than others. Specialist trusts saw more action. So it was a it was an interesting mix in the analysis that we published. But overall, this is a major and historic step in the ASEAN's history as as a union, and that kind of follows on the pay settlement that was announced earlier this year on agenda for change. Although, as we know, the frustration of a pay has been long, long down the line and has and predated the, the COVID pandemic. Um, there was a chart published by the Nuffield Trust think tank earlier this week that followed on from one that they did last year, but was updated to this year to show that nurses starting salaries have fallen by 3.4% since 2010. And that's predicted to, to deteriorate to nearly 7% by the end of this financial year. That's also keeping in mind that the other staff groups have also seen their pay deteriorate even further than that. But since we're talking about the RCN and nurses, it's it, you can see where, where some of this frustration has come from, considering that their their pay is not kept up with 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 that sort of standard um, for the last decade. Um, so now I guess we're into the stage where we know where the RCN stands. They were the first of the unions to sort of set down their marker. But now we wait for the other unions and what their turnouts for their ballots will, will look like. The unison's ballots, I think, is expected to close on Friday next week, followed by the GMB on the 29th and then Unite on the 30th. So when you we look at the, the picture in total and then also the BMA will also be quite significant as well. All of those staff groups together, the combination of, of strike action from those several groups, keeping in mind that Unison is, I think, the largest health union in, in the country, with the RCN's 400,000 members of the proportion of those that went on strike. This is this is going to be a significant step. And it, I guess it sort of also shows how far apart the, the relations have come between the government and the unions, such as the situation that we've now come to this point. I don't think anyone wanted this, but it 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 has been coming for quite a while. Um, there are a few things that are worth noting because obviously strike action is is very serious, but there is nuance to this. Um, the first is that trust leaders understand, I think, why nurses are taking this step. Um, I was at NHS providers with James earlier this week in Liverpool, and of the leaders I asked, a lot of them were cognizant of the reasons behind it. The key mainly is to maintain as services as best as possible during what is widely anticipated to be a very difficult winter with the waiting list as it is and still COVID infections disrupting, treating and, you know, saving lives and making sure that patients are as well as they should be. Um, so they want to maintain those critical services and the RCN has recognised this uh, through their ballots and I guess they want to make sure that while they respect their staff's decision to strike, those who do decide to strike are also trying to keep the show on the road, I guess, and to make sure that make sure that, that the NHS is running as as it as it can possibly be. The second, though, is that this is not the first time that trust leaders have seen strike action. We'll all remember the the year in 2016 when junior doctors went on strike. There are contingency plans in place that have been lessons learned, as as you reported um, uh, a little while back. The NHS uh, NHS England was telling trust to prepare. Um, exercises to stress test the service in, in the wake of this strike action. So they're well prepared for this. Many of the trust leaders who are in place now will have probably been in post uh, senior positions enough to 
to know what that was like and, and, and know how to prepare for it. And finally, it's, it's also worth noting that strike action is not as black and white as just here's a group of people that are just going to go on strike and that's it and then it just kind of goes like that it's a bit of a spectrum as to to what degree do 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 these staff uh go on strike there there will obviously be the, the the groups that are saying that we must go on strike we're going to do this we're going to take this forward and and so on and in the wake of what has been growing frustration over the last few years even decade or so over pay and, and other serious issues but then on the other side you've also heard from nurses who say i just cannot go on strike because i'm deeply concerned about patient safety and about and keeping my patients safe i remember back at the patient safety congress that we had earlier this month um or was it this month it might have been last month but at patient safety congress where someone in the audience said as much as I understand strike action and taking that step, I just cannot leave my patients on my ward. I just I just cannot do it. So that fundamental sense for for the patients is 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 for some people, of course, it, it means a lot to them. And, and obviously we, we never would want a patient to 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 suffer any harm um, at all. And then also in the middle, you have the people who are I guess seeing both sides of it. So there's what I'm trying to get at is that that spectrum across the 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 sort of the field of 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 of, of staff who have considered strike action is there, and it won't be as simple as just one block of staff just go on strike and that's it, and you know that's the end of it. It's it's a real it's a real sort of journey that it's going to be for these staff and these leaders to make sure that they're not only moving in the in the same direction but also recognizing why we are where we are so great overview nick um i just wonder when you were at the conference did you get a chance to sort of talk to any um leaders around um what they're how you know how they're planning to cope or whether they are hopeful that perhaps they can kind of maybe even talk staff around is there time to sort of change people's minds at all mm, um i think it's it's a bit individual it's a bit more there will obviously be the, the overall um goal of maintaining services as best as possible one described it as you know trying to basically work through a slow work day in, in some cases and and it will be it will be different for different services as well so it won't be the same for all specialties for example um Obviously, we only know this insofar as nurses at, at this moment in time, but we also need to see what what comes of the unison ballot, the GMB ballot, and so on. But but um, no, the sense I got was that leaders will be taking the overarching approach of maintaining services, but also just just their own local um, approaches. Like for example, I think one trust leader was was talking about um, about derogation and making sure that. You know those um, uh, strategies were in place uh, as they spoke with unions. Another one was talking about setting that safe standard of care, like establishing that safe standard of care, talking with other leaders to make sure that that was in place. Um, and another person was was talking about how this isn't about us trying to infringe on 
on stuff at all. It's just it's just a case of making sure we can get through this as best as possible. Um, I still remember uh, talking to a trust leader as the results were announced, and they said that they just wanted to see what the mood was on the ward first before they took any sort of further action, just to see what the what the what the temperature was like, because it, you you can never really tell just immediately from from something like that. You you really need to kind of go down to talk to the staff and understand where they are, because like I said, this is a spectrum. This isn't just a one black and white scenario for everyone. And mm. might I add a very difficult scenario? Not I don't think any staff member is taking this particularly lightly. This is a situation that has just, you know, come to the point that it has. Mm. James, did you want to want to come in there? Oh yeah, I, I was just just going to really sort of support Nick's point around um, it, it, it's not a black and white issue like what's going to be covered and what won't under strike mm. actions. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, discussions ongoing at the moment around around what kind of care uh, will continue to be done and what won't. And one issue that a chief exec uh, brought up to me was around um, so diabetes uh so um they will um uh people will keep on getting insulin jabs through the strikes it's deemed urgent uh, an emergency uh, and if they don't have those insulin jabs within 24 hours they'll turn up in hospital so it's, it's quite quite right that it's been treated in those terms but then wound dressing um as it stood certainly when i was speaking to the chief executive wasn't going to be covered and she said well actually um, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's some of their patients where if they don't get the wound dressed uh, as quickly as possible, then um, at a certain point it could lead to someone, uh, and they put this in very blunt terms, um, having their leg chopped off. So, uh, which, you know, <laughs> I think is an emergency in anyone's book. So it, it, it's like working out what is going to be covered and what won't be under the strike, because obviously, um, nurses aren't going to go on, on on strike for the emergency urgent component of their work it, it's it's for the more day-to-day -day stuff now obviously that day-to-day -day stuff then just adds to an already awful backlog so it's all bad news but um yeah i think sorting out those those kind of uh, gray areas is also something that's um not only sort of troubling on an ethical level, but also troubling on an operational level. It's something that, um, uh, yeah, that uh, it's just more work um, for an already stressed system to deal with. I just wanted to bring up uh, one other point that I thought was quite interesting as I was talking to people at NHS providers, and this is about the the law that that previously banned agency workers from from covering um, shifts during agency strikes. And in July, the government repealed that um, law that made it possible for employers to plug those staffing gaps that were caused by strikes. And as we remember, the, the, the sort of summer of discontent that was, um, you know, built up in 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 the media and, and so on about how just how frustrated public sector workers were about just the situation and, and, and the, the course of action that they're going to take. Um, that is still repealed. So in theory, a trust could um, could do that, could could plug those agency gaps um, as they as they wish. Um, whether they take that decision, uh, it's 
it's, it's yet to be seen, but but the government um, has left that door open um, in the event of, of whatever happens next. Unison, I understand, have pushed for a judicial review, so they are saying that this needs to be put back in, but it's on the grounds of it having been repealed without due process. So in theory, Unison could win that. It's, it's not expected to be massively successful, but if Unison do get that win, it's not expected to stay in very long because the government could just come back and go fine and put it through the process again, and then it's back in place. So that's one thing to be to keep in mind. It's, it's a tricky subject because I don't think anyone is really suggesting that you know some staff will take advantage of this and start working at another trust where they've taken strike action at one and then just hop over to another but i guess trusts have to just be aware of all sorts of scenarios to make sure they're covered off and and it would obviously um look quite bad if if someone is you know saying i'm going to take strike action but then suddenly hops into another trust and, and works a shift of the day um, that would be a very bold, very bold move from anyone. It would be, it would be, but it was just, it was just a, it was just an interesting no, conversation course, I had. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, you've got to plan for all eventualities, plans. right? In this exactly. Sort of thing. Although, I mean, I'm just after 2016 junior doctor strike and all the drama around that. I never thought I just couldn't imagine junior doctors walking out again because it it turned mm. into such a toxic. <laughs> we won't rehash that now, but it turned into such a toxic, um, well, not not debate, but just the situation. Um, yeah, that would be pretty unimaginable. I think their their ballots closing in. Oh, I think their ballots opening in January actually, so they're mm. slightly mm. later than the nurses and other staff. Obviously, not just you know AHPs and other Unison staff. Uh, well, mm. not Unison staff, but um, union staff. Um, accidental plug for unison there um thanks very much nick i've just got mindful of time so let's move on to our um our final talking point um before the end of the podcast this week and that was um some quite interesting senior leadership moves um james why don't i hand over to you before i um i reveal <laughs> what, what what the news is yeah sure um so a couple of point uh posts one which was was sort of has been in the pipeline for a long time and one that sort of um, was a bit more surprising. The one that had been in the pipeline for some time is Sarah Jane Marsh, uh, who was the chief exec or is still is. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> is the chief exec of Birmingham, Women, Birmingham Women's and Children's Foundation Trust. So she uh, has been appointed as the um, new national director of urgent and emergency care. Uh, which is a huge role um, at NHS England, bearing in mind uh, the stress that uh, the system is under. Um, and uh, it's an interesting appointment. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. The, the, the other appointment was to Tim Briggs, uh, who, uh, who is very well known uh, across the NHS for having established the, the kind of national getting it right first time, the GERFT program, uh, which is all about uh, limiting unwarranted variation. Um, so uh, he has been appointed uh, as the kind of new um, uh, clinical chief for uh, elective recovery. So he'll be working very closely alongside um, uh, Sir Jim Mackey, who is the um, uh, NHS England's elective recovery advisor. Um, but I think 
yeah, of of the two, just just going back to Sarah Jane Marsh's appointment, I think it's a very interesting appointment. So she's replacing Dame Pauline Philip. Um, Dame Pauline was the chief exec of Luton and Dunstable Hospital, uh, which is now part of the Bedfordshire Hospital Trust. Um, Bed, yeah, uh, which is was Luton Dunstable merging with Bedford. But the she was a very sort of senior um acute boss who Luton Dunstable were famously um at the top of the four hour target lead table. Um they they achieved the target for a long time even when I mean you know the, the four hour performance is awful now but even when uh, a lot of trusts were doing very poorly they were still hitting that um 95% benchmark which um which was very impressive. Uh but now we're going for you know, a specialist chief exec who is going to effectively be telling acute chief execs how they should be doing their job. Um, and I think that, mm. that that that's quite an interesting dynamic. Now, Sarah J. Marsh is is she's she's got a lot of profile. She's held various national roles already. Uh, she was part of has been part of the discharge task force. Um, now, obviously, discharging patients out of hospitals. Um, yeah, uh, um, Amanda Pritchard mentioned during during her speech that two two in five uh, patients at the moment are, um, you know, medically fit for discharge, but, but 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 can't get out. So discharging is a huge issue, has been for a while, and the fact she's held that national role on the national task force means she's had a lot of exposure to the issues, uh, and you know she's a very well respected figure. Um, but it is it's clearly a different role than the one that she's um, uh, played for some time. So it'll be yeah, very interesting. Also, Dame Pauline has been in that role for a long time. They're, they're doing a very long handover. I think Dame Pauline's going to be uh, staying till after winter. So um, yeah, that's probably no bad thing. But yeah, one to one to keep an eye on there. Yeah, definitely, and it could have quite an interesting impact on. Birmingham leadership as well with her Certainly. departure she's obviously you know as you said she's not an acute chief exec but she's very well well respected chief exec and I think I, I don't cover the West Midlands in detail but I think she's got an important role in the in the system. Yeah certainly. And also um, we also uh, we also uh, found out about uh, was it Tim Briggs as well he's yes, been. Yes yeah. yeah 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 Tim Briggs um as um, as I was saying, he he's going to be working a bit more closely with Sir Jim Mackey on the uh, elective recovery uh, yes. program, and um, yeah, that's uh, um, probably no bad thing. No, not at all. It kind of suggests that it's a real yeah a real focus of um, NHSC, obviously. Um, all right, we've we've done a bit of a whistle stop tour this week, haven't we? We've covered a lot, but I yeah. think um, time 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 to wrap up. And um, yeah, just a reminder to um, all listeners: our podcast is available every week on our website and wherever else you find your podcasts. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. And for more health policy news and analysis, you can also check out our website. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>